0: This is a country with 900,000 M.D.s or D.O.s. There are going to be those odd cases, but to project that across the entire profession is nuts. To understand it like you understand it, Rick, requires an intermediary step called medical school. You know, boys and girls, it was once said that April is the cruelest month, and it absolutely is. This is the April edition, 2016, of Risk Management Monthly. And as you recall, in Southern California, they're picking bananas in here in Michigan. Already this week, we've shoveled snow three times. You, you know, life's just not fair, Rick. But it's Greg Henry, Rick Bucata, and we have a guest today. Rick, would you like to introduce our guest?
1: Uh, yeah, this is Jennifer. Come on, Jennifer, help me out. Come on, I don't want to do screw this up.
2: So, i i i assume you're referring to my last name no i'm sorry concerning
1: your middle name i can Wait, do stankies. my
2: middle name right. uh, so, <laughs> yeah. i think greg's got it greg has a better accent than i do yep come on
0: rick you know you took french in school L'ombre. that's what it is stankos <laughs> right jennifer that's Let me next Correct. time
1: we, next time we do this, I'll take the stankest part and you could do the middle part we're square, okay
0: okay Jennifer, Perfect. thanks for
1: joining us. I know you just got off of a shift where you ran your butt off you got home a little bit late and it's uh, like uh, and you came right into this and so we are appreciative and plus we gave you basically no notice. We asked you like about an hour ago if you were willing to do this, and
0: you were very generous and said absolutely
2: you get more honest answers when you don't give much notice so
0: exactly <laughs> you'. are to- too much preparation isn't a good thing. Before we start out with uh, with cases for Jennifer, let's take care of mailbag and some people who've written in. And we do have some problems that I'd like Jennifer's uh, opinion on. First one, first letter is, Dear Greg, I'm sending you this certified mail. And and let me uh, testify right now to all of you listeners. This came as a $6.74 certified letter to uh, our center in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, because I had said on one of our previous broadcasts nothing good comes registered mail well this gentleman took it seriously this uh, let me let me go on with his letter he signed up for risk management monthly and he's been binge listening for 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 every uh, to every second of this He's listened to every episode since 2007. Now, I want to tell him right now, I'm not going to use his name, but there is a 12-step program for this. We feel badly about this. You, You must be going out of your head here. Now, the letter starts out okay, but he does have a complaint for you and I, Rick, this is a gentleman who, who has originally grew up or spent time in California. He has family in the wine business. But he said, we, it, it is a paradox that you and I occasionally present cases which have to do with people who are intoxicated, and yet we have wine of the month on the, um, on the show. Now, I will say this. This is the first time we've ever gotten a letter against wine of the month. The funny thing is what he doesn't realize is when I'm out places, I get more comments about the wine selection than I do the medical legal discussions that go on. So let me just tell our new reader, sorry about the fact that it it sounds like it's paradoxical. We do have a lot of intoxicated cases, Rick and I and Jennifer all realize that 10% of the people of the United States don't handle alcohol well. So those 10% cut off the uh, wine of the month at the end. For the rest of you, we are going to continue to do wine of the month. So, Rick, welcome our new listener and thank him for binge listening.
1: Yeah, you know, this is, uh, I'm watching you, Greg, and this is a single-spaced page-and-a-half page and a half tirade that he sent you and (laughs) and then think of this poor person binge watching uh eight years or binge listening to eight years of this stuff as 96 issues he would have found out that if he had listened to 10 they all sound the same thereafter so and obviously this must this person must be incarcerated to have the time to do this i know.
0: have no idea what he's doing but god love you for uh for for listening to all those uh additions Well, let's
1: move on to something more seriously uh, okay this is supposed to be an educational program greg
0: okay number right. two i've i've got i've got a case no i'm uh, gonna give you mine i want to give
1: you mine i'm gonna give you mine, I'm you're do mine, give you mine. okay could,
0: could. david dubois
1: yeah. see that's the french i could do that thank yeah. you very much <laughs> thank you <laughs> Says he's been practicing for 32 years, and he wants to know why he hasn't been sued yet. Uh, David, it's it's because you order every test in the book. You see one patient in an hour, and you've been damn lucky.
0: Yeah, Let's and, move and, on. and you send everybody a handwritten, not an email, but a handwritten note thanking them. You know, if you've been doing this for 32 years and your name's never appeared on a summons and complaint, maybe you're a role model for the rest of us. Uh, all I can say is it's not if for most of us, it's just when. And uh, it's great that you haven't been sued. Maybe you're a nice person. Uh, if you're that nice a person, I've got a wife, you know, that would like to meet you. I think something like that. But uh, good luck for you. I have I have no comeback to that, Rick. Jennifer, any words
1: of wisdom here?
2: Well, the first thing I thought is, this guy must be a super nice guy because people who have great relationships with their patients tend to get sued less frequently than those who don't.
1: No argument there. Listen, Greg, you want to pick up this article from The New Yorker that is still causing people to pull their hair out?
0: Well, the article from The New Yorker, which which I'm not sure whether we've mentioned this before, but this the article of The New Yorker basically takes what's been being passed around in the New England Journal of Medicine and that sort of thing, basically saying that about 2% of physicians are responsible for what, Rick? 40% of the uh, malpractice payments in the United States. Well, actually,
1: it says 1% of physicians account for 32%. But that's not the part that people are pissed off about. What they're concerned about is this idea that if you've been sued once, you're more likely to be sued again. And this is maybe a red flag when you're applying for privileges at some emergency department, et cetera, et cetera, that where there's smoke, there may be fire. And people say no, 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 no.
0: Yeah, first of all, I don't think that's actually the case. The other thing that this doesn't mention is the fact that if you're in pediatrics and you've got five suits, that may be a big deal. Because most pediatricians go through their careers and never get sued. If you're a neurosurgeon and have only had five suits, that's just a slow week for you. Because when your outcomes are bad, you know, when when even your good cases require being fed, you know, you, those are your success cases, there's going to be unhappiness in the population. I, I think it's very hard to take a general number across all physicians, family practice, internal medicine, and surgical disciplines, and say that this is the number. I I, I don't think that's fair, Rick.
1: Well, the generalization is if you've been sued once, you've been more likely to be sued in the future. And if you're a neurosurgeon or GP, the, the principle still applies. If you're an outlier in terms of the number of suits, you're more likely to be sued Again, I yeah. I don't think what's what's the big deal? Everybody's getting all upset about this. Jennifer, you have a sense of this?
2: Well, first of all, to say if you've been sued once, you're more likely to be sued again, given the numbers of lawsuits against emergency physicians as an example. That's ridiculous. One in 2 of us will be sued during our career and one in 3 will be multiple times that doesn't mean that half of the emergency physicians are poor physicians that's that's crazy so what i would say is that if you've been sued multiple times you're you know you're more likely perhaps to be sued again but to say that because you've been sued once you're you're likely to be sued again is i think not an accurate way to put it
1: No i think that they basically weren't focusing on the once. It's basically the more you've been sued, the more likely you are to be sued. And they point out in this article in the New Yorker that a 2007 study done by public citizens found the same thing, that 2.3% of physicians were responsible for 33 of all, uh, all payments. Now, obviously, this is kind of getting out to the extremes of the bell-shaped curve. They also have a problem with the data bank. They said it's basically useless and corralling the rotten apples because the doctors are not identified by name, only by number, and even if they were, the public can't access the database.
0: Rick, stop. That's where this is going. That is, everybody who's writing about this wants to push it so that every citizen can just push a button and open the data bank. And what that does is say that they're going to take raw data unprocessed and everybody's going to get to come in and say I don't want to see Dr Bukata cuz he's in the data bank. I mean I think I think we have to look and see what the aim of all these editorials and all this discussion is and that's to open this up to absolute unfettered access to the data. And I'm not sure that's good. I'm not sure that's in the public's best interest. Well, this is just what this article
1: is saying, and I don't claim to be necessarily supporting it. But, 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 did you see this thing where they point out that Dr. 33041 had at least 31 payouts over a 12-year period? Totally more than $10 million. That's pretty impressive, 31 payouts. They also have doctor number 43923. You know that doctor, Greg, right? yeah, 43923.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, he was a friend of mine, Yeah, right, exactly.
1: Right. Had 21 payments, including uh, eight improperly performed surgeries, three unnecessary surgeries, and uh, good for him, two wrong body part surgeries.
0: Yeah, well, Rick, let, let, let's just be honest here. This is a country with 900,000 MDs or DOs. 900,000. There are going to be those odd cases, but to project that across the entire profession is nuts. And they they really don't propose a solution to this except saying, well, everybody ought to be able to look at it. I don't know how that stops this kind of criminal activity.
1: I think one of the things they are trying to suggest is that this database may potentially be used for more looking at physician behavior than it is currently. Right now, it's just a, a only few people can access. And this article was written by, of all people, an MDJD neurosurgeon, of all people, for crying out loud.
0: Talk about, if you want to find somebody with characteristics of a bad personality, a neurosurgeon who's also an, a lawyer, oh my God. Oh, you know, that brings up, not that they're particularly analogous,
1: but Jennifer, give us, please give me, three minutes, two minutes of your background. It's extraordinary. And I think that our listeners would enjoy hearing the diversity of things that you're into.
2: So first of all, not all lawyers are bad because I happen to be one, but I've had a really blessed and interesting life. This is my second career being an emergency physician. Prior to that, I was a medical malpractice defense attorney working for the United States Army at a large teaching hospital. And in that role, I managed every case through a very busy hospital across a variety of specialties. And so I've seen a lot of medical malpractice cases and have been involved in those. And so that gives me a unique perspective, practicing and then also trying to teach and help my fellow physicians to avoid being sued.
1: But Jennifer, tell us about your police career, your, your, your ninja turtle <laughs> career. Come on. Yeah, your karate <laughs> career? Right.
2: Come on. Yeah. Actually, I did take karate, Greg, as a and and I but I I wasn't like a triple black belt, but I've you know, I just I love life and every time I see something new and unique and interesting, I just feel like I need to experience it, and I think that's one of the things that uh drove me to emergency medicine because it's such an interesting interesting job every day. But yeah, so when I was 21, I worked as a police officer in Denver. And I think that's what gave me my love for the law and, and procedure. But I did that because I was trying to pay my way through college and it was a great way to do that. And in the process of going through all my pre-med work and being a police officer, I decided to combine the two. So I went to law school after that before going to medical school, but I always thought that I would go to medical school. It was just a two year detour. But um, in the Army, I was able to go through airborne training and, and do some other fun things like be a, a military judge and a turtle, ninja turtle. I don't know where the turtle thing comes from. <laughs> that implies a, a slow and slow creature that, uh, that turtles. But no, I was able to compete on the American Ninja Warrior last year. That was great. And, and like I said, I just enjoy a variety of fun things. All right. You've now been identified as an overachiever.
0: <laughs> and, well, uh, no,
2: actually, no, I, I, res- <laughs> I told my residency director one time that uh, she asked asked me to describe myself and I told her I was a type B person and she laughed at me. And I said, no, really, I'm a type B person. <laughs> I'm really laid back. And yeah, yeah,
0: right. She's, okay. Yeah, no, she's- yeah, we all believe that. Can I give you another quickie here, Rick? This deals with governmental immunity and the term gross negligence, but it has nothing to do with medicine. This is a very interesting case: Keel versus Palmer. Came down in the Michigan Court of Appeals, went to the Michigan Supreme Court, and it had to do with a an agent of the state, a cheerleading coach at a public university, who uh, was sued, and despite the fact. She testified, the university testified, they took numerous precautions and safeguards to protect cheerleaders. its If you've ever watched a lot of these competitive cheerleaders, this is dangerous stuff. They fly up in the air, they come down, they have to get caught. Well, somebody got hurt. Now, the question is, did they have standing to sue both the university and the state of Michigan and this coach? Well, and, and the, the finally, the, the state basically decided in its own favor and said, because they took usual and customary precautions, there is no gross negligence. And therefore, both the state and the individual person are immune from liability pursuant to the state statutes. Now, for for those states we deal with, which have gross negligence, as part of protection for emergency docs there is some relevance here and that is the state says if we've set up a series of rules and you've done the following few things you can't you cannot bring an action and i think this is this is good for us this helps those states which are pushing gross negligence standards for emergency medicine Jennifer
2: i agree that would be a, a great trend to see in medicine. I don't see it happening. I see, no. I see the plaintiff's spar as too powerful still. And I see physicians and hospitals and insurance companies as having too deep of pockets to ever allow that to happen on a broad scale. I think well, there might be a, some individual wins. What about the fact that if
0: you accept the state's money, are you not de facto an agent of the state? So if we're seeing you know, Medicaid patients, aren't they essentially the state's patients? Aren't we agents of the state and then would fall under the governmental immunity of the state for doing that work? I mean, what, what, what's the legal
2: argument there? Well, you just made it, Greg, and I think it's a great legal argument. Whether or not that would fly in, in practice. I, I just um uh, you know, every time we try to make any inroads in tort reform, the plaintiff's bar, you know, comes out en masse and and is somehow able to defeat that. But I agree with you. I think it's an excellent argument and it's one that I think that we should support as a profession and in any way that we can through legislative actions and and advocacy.
0: You know, the problem is some of the governmental immunity, which uh, we might view as a good thing, is a bad thing. If you look at some of the things which have happened in the VA hospital system and were sort of gotten away with for a while, there probably should have been some system taking care of that. But uh, currently... Emergency docks are still sort of swinging out there, and uh, we have to be careful as as to what happens i mean this This is not all good news for us well wasn't there this movement to come up with some kind of
1: allegations that if you followed these guidelines, you would be absolved from any kind of uh malpractice uh culpability uh, and so that left i i forget what the term is that they use where uh this is applicable where safe harbors thank you thank you thank you <laughs> that's uh, why, I, why you have an attorney on this show rick and that's, that's not all that easy to, to come up with uh, guidelines that would allow that. Certainly, I think physicians would be the ones to say, yes, let's come up with them if it automatically guarantees that we're not going to be able to be sued or at least not successfully sued. But it's not obviously something that the attorneys are going to be too thrilled with either because we're kind of like the hens, the foxes watching the chicken coop if we come up with the guidelines.
0: Twenty years ago, the state of Maine got into this where the uh, lawyers and the docs got together and said, if you did this, we'd make certain safe harbors. They did it for things like C-spine fractures, those sorts of uh, injuries. They had a series of them. And you know what? It lasted about two years and fell apart. I think that there is a natural tension here. That is going to be very difficult. And here's the other problem. Whenever the law decides to pass legislation, say, well, if you do this test, you're immune. By the time that law is passed, the test itself is probably five years out of date. I mean, I mean, it's very hard for the law to keep up with what's actually happening as a standard of care in the practice of medicine. They're always behind.
1: Yeah, although there are some really kind of simple things that could potentially be done. But, you, you know, the energy to take on these initiatives is probably just not there. As an example, something simple like every glass cause wound if x-rayed would absolve you from a foreign body if the x-ray didn't show it. You know, something, something like that where you could just do so much. But, it, but in any case, there are these three states that we periodically talk about that have this new standard where you have to be an out and out felon to get uh, convicted of a malpractice, like oh, Georgia yeah. and a couple others.
0: Be very careful there, Rick. Uh, uh, because some of the people
1: yeah. are convicted in those states. Well, well
0: yes, and, and, and we, we have at least one case going down right now in uh, Georgia. As you're well aware of, with a very big name in emergency medicine, who said it was gross negligence to have missed a case, a pulmonary embolus case. That case is going to go all the way to the to to the uh, board of ASEP, and they're talking about kicking out a member who's a famous person. Believe me, because somebody says it's gross negligence. It ain't, it ain't necessarily so, as they say in the South, and we have to be very uh, we have to be very careful about these things. Can I give you one more quick update? Yes, please. Okay, Langley versus Rupert. This is a very interesting question because the plaintiff said, "Well, the guy who sound uh, who signed the uh, affidavit of merit, well, he had boards in the specialty." He says he devoted 50% of his time. He did this. He did that. We haven't done the search yet. And actually, the defense in this case took his affidavit of merit and said, basically presented a Daubert challenge. And the Michigan Court of Appeals said, just because you meet all the standards, if what you're saying is still crap, it's still crap. And they stopped the case at that level would not let it go on through the usual discovery phase and uh, where you might have expected the Daubert challenge to be applied. But this was right off, right out of the gate. The things that he said in his affidavit of merit were considered to be egregious, a deviation from what the majority of physicians believe the science to be, and we won on that one. And that is a uh, that was an important victory here in the state.
1: Do you want to go on to um, another email? Sure. Jonathan Landis brought up the issue of ECG overreads, and do we need to do it? And if so, what systems are out there? uh, Jonathan's from Hawaii, and apparently there are some hospitals that are quite small, isolated, and their ability to do EKG overreads are substantially more difficult than large hospitals where it uh, there are lots of doctors around and you could do it more or less contemporaneously and
0: and that's because there's no electricity between the islands in in hawaii is that the problem here rick or what's the actual problem the more fundamental issue is is our ekg overreads the standard of care
1: that we uh, are required to comply with Uh, jennifer what do you think
2: well, the way they work in practice, oftentimes, is, in my opinion, fairly useless. A lot of times, the overread isn't done for a week. There's no communication back with the uh, treating physician, and there's no contact with the patient when it's abnormal. And so many of them are abnormal. It kind of depends on the clinical picture. What else <clears> is going on with the patient? So, I honestly, I, I'm not sure what the utility is other than to be used against you later if there's a discrepancy. Um, so I'm not a big fan of them.
1: Well, I guess the, my question is, is it the community standard that EKGs be overread by anybody, whether it's a colleague emergency physician or a cardiologist or, or anybody?
2: Well, I think it is the standard, but I'm, again, I, I'm not sure that it, it's one that ought to exist. And, and, you know, maybe that's something that should be changed if it you is know, the we, standard in your community.
0: We were involved in this years ago with uh, x-ray overreads. What does it go, good does it do any physician who sees a C-spine film on Friday night to get an overread on Monday that says... Repeat films required suspicion of fracture. It's useless to the patient, and it's only deadly to the doctor. You got to ask a question: What's the EKG overread for? I, I'll tell you what it's for: It's to put a charge on that EKG before it's filed. I don't know why emergency physicians can't can't uh, take the information off that EKG. And now that the new programs are in for reading, I don't believe that the computer read of the EKG is that deviant. I'd be interested to see a, a paper that actually looked across the United States and say, how many patients were actually improved or made better by an overread later on of their EKG? Because... Uh, We know it's improved the ability of cardiologists to buy condominiums in Florida. Has it improved the health care of the patients of the United States? I don't think that that they can prove that.
1: Well, technically, uh, if you read it, you can bill for it. And uh, the overreads are basically would be viewed as a quality control kind of measure. They have to be done contemporaneously with the care of the patient. That's the same thing that applies to the x-rays. But I would like to assert that uh, EKGs do not need to be overread. I would like to assert that these are within the core competencies of board-certified emergency physicians. It's one thing to take a three- or four-year residency in radiology where you're learning to read CAT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, but it doesn't take a lot of time to learn how to read an EKG. As a matter of fact, the American College of Cardiology has an uh, EKG Certification program that you can take to show that you are competent in this. But I would prefer to take the position that this is a core competency of emergency physicians and stop the overread charade that we do.
0: Yep. I think that as more and more new payment models are coming up, we're going to get agreement between various emergency departments, particularly freestanding emergency departments and third-party payers, about exactly what they're going to do. Jennifer, what do you think about my core competency argument?
2: I agree with you 100%. Your um, your argument was more eloquent than mine, but um, I agree. And my group, for instance, does bill for... The read and but uh, somewhere there's an overread for just quality control, like you said, but it's done at such a later point, and there's no feedback to the reading physician, and there's no benefit to the patient it's only uh, so I, I I agree with you, I don't see any utility in the overread other than an occasional quality control maybe, and then when it's done in conjunction with the reading physician. So that it's useful.
1: Yeah, it's hard to conceive that pretty much anybody's overread system is clinically applicable to the care of that patient. I mean, you know, how many years have we done this, Greg? And, you know, I don't recall of any cases where they called back and said, oh, by the way. So...
2: Well, the other thing is that you need to have that EKG done within 10 minutes. So if it's so important that that be done in a contemporaneous way and shown to the physician and read by the physician, how is it that it's important to have that overread a week later? It makes no sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that in those arguments that I've been involved in, it, it is contracts between the, emer- the cardiologist and the hospital where they've gotten the contract to a- and have basically said no EKG will be filed until there's an official reading. It's like with the uh, radiology reports until there's an official reading. I think that as again as payment mechanisms change, I think there's going to be hospitals unwilling when there's one single fee paid. Then we got to decide who's going to do what. And if they don't do it when the patient needs it, it's fee for no service. And it's going to get ugly.
1: Well, those of you out there who uh, know anything about the uh, billing system, I think that there is only one bill that gets submitted. That you can submit the two, but whoever submits the bill first gets paid. And so there is no payment for any kind of quality control, overreading, or any of that stuff.
0: All right, information update. Rick, I want to compliment you and uh, the emergency medicine acute care essays. The March issue has a discussion on uh, shared decision-making in emergency medicine, understanding the rationale and appropriateness and uh, reasonable approaches. This was an excellent piece, and I think that this shared decision-making is going to become more and more a topic in court's what did you say? What did you do? And I think we're moving beyond the phase of informed consent. Informed consent means you've told the patient, you know, what you think and what the dangers may be. Uh, Shared decision making is you've joined with that patient to let them be risk takers along with you. Let them participate in the process and um, I, I compliment uh, you and your people for this essay. It who is, wrote it? What? Who wrote this? Yeah. I, th- I think this is um, your uh, Chris Carpenter and uh, Ken Milne. It's terrific. Good guys. Yeah, good guys. And what it is, is it's the reasonable discussion. You and I can't have a full-blown full sit-down on somebody who we think has meningitis at that moment. But there is a whole series of disease entities in emergency medicine where people ought to get to cooperate uh, with us as to what we're going to do, particularly at end-of-life patients. I think this is going to be a bigger and bigger issue, Rick. So good job. Your your thoughts, Jennifer, on shared
1: decision-making?
2: Well, I love it. You, from a legal perspective, how well does that hold up? I don't I don't know. I don't think that there's enough data out there um, to suggest that when a patient takes on some additional risk on their own in conjunction with you, whether or not that will reduce the physician's risk. But I do like the idea and I think that it's important. And I think that the patient should have some choices, particularly when you're talking about testing and things that are not benign, like CAT scans. I actually personally use this a lot in my practice when I'm dealing with an abdominal pain that I am not particularly concerned about, but that a lot of people would go ahead and just CAT scan. And I let the person know what their risks of getting uh, leukemia or other cancer from that test down the road will be. And we decide if their pain is really, and clinical picture is really that important at this moment that they need to have that test versus watch and wait and come back. You know,
1: one of the things I think is really difficult in shared decision-making is to give the patients a true assessment of the risk and benefits of the options. As an example, if you were talk, going to talk to somebody about TPA for stroke and wanted to quote the relative risks and benefits and you use the NINDS Study, you would have to say that twelve percent of the patients got benefit, and six percent got harmed. To be very candid, I uh, doubt very much whether the vast majority of emergency physicians know the numbers on this very important, most important study in this area. And and I and I think that you don't want to get yourself into a position where it's like. Well, he didn't tell me that. You know, if I knew it was that, you know, like that was the case, I wouldn't have done it kind of thing. So I think that, you know, to give informed consent requires that you need to know what the risks and benefits are. I think if you talk about uh, antibiotics for appendicitis, as people are starting to do now, you need to know. In general, what is the failure rate of that therapy and what the options are and what are the risks associated with it? You just can't say, well, you know, some people are using antibiotics and it and may you an operation. I don't think you can do that.
0: Well, I, I think what you have to understand is to educate every patient to understand it like you understand it, Rick, requires an intermediary step called medical school. You've picked out a good example with the appendicitis. Are they more aggressive about this in England? Yes, they are. And it seems like the pub public puts up with it. I'm still not sold on this. If my grandson had rebound tenderness and it looked like appendicitis, and understanding that those who are treated with a- uh, antibiotics will still need to have their appendix out about a third of the time in the next two years. Uh, you know what? I'm not sure that all of our people are qualified to carry on those discussions with the patient. And I'm not sure every family understands that discussion well enough to know what to do.
1: Well, it's clearly an example where shared decision-making is, is an option these days. I think I, I, at least on an avant-garde point of view, it's an option. Some surgeons would would say, that's kind of silly. This is what we do now and we've always done it. It always worked before kind of thing.
0: I will say this, that the trend is now online. I have four cases sent to me in the last six months in which the term of the plaintiffs, the plaintiffs have used is not informed consent, but they did not. The doctors being sued for not participating fully in shared decision making. So we are seeing emergency doctors being sued not for not for the usual and customary consents, but for shared decision making, and I think that raises the bar. I'm not even sure how one now documents shared decision-making on the chart.
2: And, you know, that's exactly what I was talking about. I'm not sure that um, having the patient assume some risk benefits the the risk or has any risk reduction for the physician. In fact, it may be just the opposite. Um, yes. So I agree with you on that, Greg.
1: Yeah, I think it, that when you uh, take that on, you got to you've got to realize that you are putting yourself at some risk because they can always say, well, I wasn't fully informed of the options. I didn't know that that was uh, he didn't tell me that that was uh, a likely consequence or to the extent that it was, all of those things can uh, be said. And you can certainly never document the detail that you, it'd be a full page of of dictation.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I don't know where most of these people practice but to, to document how you carried on the educational process, raised this against that, you know what? I honestly believe that the vast majority of people come to a doctor to get his or her best advice. What it, Really, what we mostly do is we give advice. It's like going to stockbrokers. It's like going to attorneys. Professionals give advice without never having a 100% guarantee that this is the way something's going to work out. And we, we need to be honest about it. Although, you know, in the process of informed
1: consent, you're supposed to give, well, here's an alternative to what I'm recommending. Here's an alternative. Here's the pros and cons of the alternative. And if we do nothing, here's the pros and cons of doing nothing. Uh, All of that is an integral part of informed consent. It's, It's not here's the risks and benefits of taking your appendix out, and then that's it. So most people don't extend it to the nine components that I just kind of reviewed.
0: Rick, you and I, the next time I'm in L.A., we're going to pull 10 people off the street. We'll bring out our camera. You know how people like it when we have the microphone and the camera and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to ask them to define number needed to treat. Here's an antibiotic. Would you like to have this drug? Number needed to treat. You know, I I honestly believe that there is a level of science that most of our people can't participate in. You know, we don't take a vote as to how large the electrical transformers are going to be supplying the city of L.A. That's done by people with Ph.D.s in electrical engineering.
1: Yes, Greg. And but, 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 you know, if the number needed to treat for otitis is 15, uh, that means uh, 14 get get no benefit. They get the uh, c diff they get the rash they get the uh vaginal infections uh with the uh, fungi it's kind of like we can't necessarily put our head in the sand on this thing either
0: no jennifer what get what involved in this
2: get involved in this <laughs> well the one thing that i think is interesting about the whole conversation the thing i keep thinking about is how inherently flawed the entire uh, process is for most people i mean we all have a an opinion of what should happen with the patient, and I think that our conversation with that patient is biased towards that whether and I think at t p a is a perfect example of that. you know I think that emergency physicians fall pretty hard on one side or the other, but my point is just that when we have this informed consent or even the informed or even the um, shared decision making, I still think that the competent and articulate Physician is going to guide that conversation and hopefully will guide it in a way that that patient can understand given their education level and and background.
1: Yeah, I often fall back on if uh, your son was my relative, here's what I would do in that case uh, so that you can kind of make it up close and personal uh, so that you can put a less scientific, more emotional kind of context to the thing because. The assumption is that you would treat your children well, which is maybe a delusion. But yeah, they
0: don't know my children, do they? (laughs) Oh my god, this is unbelievable. Um,
1: You know, uh, Greg and I are going to be in New Orleans in about three weeks or thereabouts, and one year. This is this is kind of. We went out, and uh, we wanted to film uh, people's response to a a variety of. Questions about their medical experiences that they had had, and we went into Jackson Square, and we had a uh, a camera, and we had a microphone that like you do for an interview. It's like uh, it. And as soon as they people saw this microphone, and Greg would go over and talk to them, we couldn't shut them up. It was amazing <laughs> the people that were willing to tell their life story to total had- strangers.
0: We had people thinking that this was the confessional. I, I, I was about to call myself Father Henry because we had one guy who admitted being shot and <laughs> take memory Rick yeah. the guy who, who was uh shot and taken to uh to the to the great old uh hospital there and he goes through all the things that happened and you know it was it was just a and he honestly believed he had it coming. Yeah, I sort of deserved it. <laughs> and he, he mentioned it. Get in the discussion
1: before we move on. There's one more. We when we interviewed the Silvers. Now I don't know whether you've ever been down to uh, New Orleans, but there are these people who paint themselves in silver and all of their clothes are silver. And there was a uh, so there was a silver man and there was a silver woman pushing a baby carriage with a silver baby. And these people were <laughs> were, were 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 unbelievably uh, affable. And uh, gave us a nice, nice interview. But moving on, Greg, you want to talk about um, Michael Golding?
0: Yeah, Michael Golding from Australia. And uh, Mike's been a listener for a long time. And, you know, hello to the people down under. He was uh, a little chagrined when I made a comment on an earlier session that the plain x-ray of the neck in most cases is unnecessary. And secondly, is becoming useless. Yeah, you know, he said, "Say it isn't so." I mean, do we always have to get CT scans? And I'm going to raise the following four questions. I, I've reviewed this literature currently for the EMA course this year. What's that? And
1: what's, the, what's what kind of course, Greg? Is that
0: yeah, the, the Emergency Medical Abstract course, Rick, well, which the? is a wonderful course. But enough shameless promotion here. And there are four points that I think need to be made. The first one is whenever you shoot multiple views of the neck on anyone, it requires movement of the patient. So if that patient isn't stable, it takes more tech time to do a, a four, three, three views of the neck than it does to shoot a CT. So it's not conservative with regard to tech time. Number two, in the, since 2007, most everybody in the Western world has reduced the amount of rads shot to the neck by a factor of 10. There's, there are two papers in the data bank that look at, the, two of these Canadian papers, that looked across Canada at children's hospitals. The variation in rads used was unbelievable. And they finally got together and said, enough, we can do it with this. So instead of being four, 400 times the, the amount of, uh, of radiation we'd use in a standard set of films, it's maybe 40 times or 30 times. The next thing is they've redone all that data, looking at what is the real risk down the road. If you're a 10-year-old, what are the chances you're going to get a thyroid cancer? From being shot with this with this CT, and the answer is that 's real weak data we 're talking about differences that you 'd have to have a hundred thousand patients to actually see a difference in the number of thyroid cancers so the only valid reason to say no CTs of the neck, and again, I'm a conservative. I shoot these on fewer people than you can ever imagine. But if you need an x-ray, if grandma fell out of the, of bed at the nursing home and now can't move her neck, I want to get the best film possible, and that's a CT. And the chances you're going to give grandma any cancer are so small, forget about it. You know, I, I I think we need to feel comfortable with real technology, which is actually moving us ahead. And if I had any question, and I don't know any emergency docs who uh, think that the CT is always easy to read, particularly in people who are bent and scrunched around, uh, the the CT film is easier to look at than the plain film. So if if, if the plain film isn't dead, let's just say it's dying. And when the charge is irrelevant, when, when what we charge for the film it doesn't make any difference, you know what? I think it's going to die completely. I think plain film is on its way out. Jen?
2: I think that it, that's a, a, a dangerous statement. And the reason is that I think that we are so... Overusing CTs, I agree that it's really difficult to interpret plain film on an elderly person with a lot of degenerative disease, but as a general rule, I wouldn't say that the plain film is dead at all, particularly on young people. And I, I just
0: Let me, Jennifer, let me
2: ask you a question. If
0: that person is going to get a CT of the head anyway, let's say they've got neurologic deficit, or they're, they're stuporous. Are you go- when it takes three seconds longer if you're gonna do their head to do their neck, what are you gonna do?
2: I do the neck also in large part because you're already there. it doesn't take a lot of extra radiation <laughs> to complete that study
0: right, and again, I'm not sure exactly who the bugaboo is we're afraid of. We've already said that before two thousand seven, yeah they using big doses. That's been cut down to a tenth of what they were. And I think a lot of our thinking does not reflect that. First of all, there's all kinds of people who get studies who need no study. If you ask somebody, is your neck hurt? Not really. Or I always loved not till they put me on this board. Since then, it's been aching. And they have a normal exam and they're awake and alert. And you, you examine them. You know what? Those people don't need any study of any kind. If, if they really need a study, get a good study.
1: This is a really tough one, uh, I think, because you're right. If the issue is radiation, they're drilling down substantially on the amount of radiation. I had mentioned before that Vancouver General Hospital, the folks there, in conjunction with, I believe it's Siemens, are coming up with these algorithms which are resulting in the amount of radiation associated with the CAT scan being. Almost equivalent to that with a plain film. It's a, it's remarkable, and and even, even in the papers that were done by like Peter Vicellio, when they looked at doing CT angiograms, and it was said, well, it's normally like ten or fifteen uh, millisieverts. They're now down to one, two, three millisieverts to do these things, which is. Nobody would ever uh, believe that it's in such a short time the amount of radiation would have decreased that much. So uh, this is tough. If the only issue is radiation, and what if the radiation became essentially comparable? We know that the CT is a better study. We know that and the, there's the literature is very clear on that. So if it's only a matter of radiation, what happens when, when they're the same? The other question is: Is Nexus dead? I mean, there's going to be, you know, if you talk to Jerry Hoffman, he would say, this is ridiculous to talk about if the C-spine x-ray did. He said, Nexus works, Nexus is great, Nexus didn't miss anybody with a significant injury. Although there are certainly other papers that suggest that CT is substantially superior to plain films.
0: Yeah, and, and it's not in, it, it, what Jerry would say, I, you know, I'm sorry, Jerry is near to comment on it, but. He agrees that a third of the fractures were missed with plain film. He'll say that. What he's saying is that, that there was very little, if any, operative intervention or change in therapy based on those injuries. And that may, may be correct. But I, but I think that at a certain point in time, what are, we, what are we trying to stop here? If it's too much cost, drop the cost of the study. If it's radiation we're already cutting down the radiation of the study if you're going to shoot their head anyway because of significant trauma, why move the patient if you seriously think the patient have a cervical spine fracture, why move their neck anymore
1: we're not we're not talking about people who we seriously think are have has a cervical that. spine fracture we're talking about all the others the vast majority of others where we really don't believe that there's a high likelihood of a cervical spine fracture those are the tough ones not the ones who've got a bump in the head and are and are exhibiting you know altered consciousness those are those are easy cases
0: right but the, but again I think we need to ask some real questions here about how come all these other people are getting plain films on the neck when they probably didn't need anything anyway
1: Jennifer help us out no.
2: here. Well, you know, I have actually a, a perfect case example for this, Greg. I was um I was in my residency up at Taos and I had a young man come in who had a snowboarding accident. He went off one of those big flat-top jumps and came down um, on the backside and landed kind of on his back going down the slope. Not a horrible mechanism of injury. And he said that it kind of hurt, but he got up and he rode down the hill and no problem, got down to the car and he started to get kind of sore on the lateral parts of his neck. And he didn't have any midline tenderness, but, you know, to just... to just being thorough and to appease myself, I decided to get some plain films and he ended up having an unstable C2 fracture that I wouldn't have picked up. I would not have scanned that kid. He, he had he was neurologically intact. He didn't really have any head trauma. He had a helmet on, wasn't complaining of that. And is that is it a rare instance that, that something like that would happen? Yes. But having that Tool at my disposal, probably saved a, a a pretty bad injury for this kid.
0: Well, we're not going to have a final judgment here, but I think that there's going to be come a time when we've got to ask ourselves the huge number of people who need nothing, and then what's the correct study if you're if you're going to pick up everything? And uh, I don't think we're there yet. Can we do a case, Rick? Please do. Oh. You're going to love this. It's going to drive you crazy. And I'm glad Jerry. Oh, oh,
1: that's great.
0: I'm glad Jerry is not here. Failure to administer Tamiflu blame for swine flu death. I, I Trust me. Good luck. Good luck. Trust me. Okay. This is a 27-year-old, and it says, and this is in a doctor-friendly state. Okay. State of Montana. It doesn't get more doctor friendly than the state of oh, Montana, right. unless it's the state of South Dakota.
1: They're very fortunate to have the few doctors that they have.
0: Exactly. This is a 27 year old who died of swine flu during the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic. She'd shown up at the emergency department the day before her death, and the physician's assistant saw her, was Supposedly this was discussed with the doc. The PA working under supervision said that uh, you look like you've got, you know, the cold a uh, cold to me did not prescribe Tamiflu. The patient had been sick for about 36 hours. And so they found some and she came back the next day and died from some other kind of uh meningeal process and they found an expert who was willing to say if they'd only started Tamiflu on that first visit, she wouldn't have died. Now I haven't told you what the jury found yet, guys. But what do you think, Rick? Go ahead.
1: There's no way that any dollars should change hands in that case. None, zero.
2: How what, about what ten million, yeah. in Washington State? Ten million. There's a recent, very similar case of a pregnant woman who went in with normal vital signs pretty normal exam wasn't feeling well uri type symptoms and turned out that she had influenza she died a couple days later and um and the child lived for about 6 months and then also died but um the the finding was that the doctor the emergency physician didn't give tamiflu and and that was that was what caused this this harm. It's really it's really scary and really unbelievable. Well, let me
0: let me just tell you that the plaintiff's expert in this case, they could not get one in emergency medicine against the emergency physician who, by the name of Carter, and the um, there was a pulmonologist. Well, there were two pulmonologists who testified that they'd heard. Of people being saved with this, and, and you know it just makes my blood boil as as I read this sort of thing, but um, so, Jennifer, what do you think they did in this case, state of Montana?
2: I think that they um, they found for the the uh, patient what,
0: Rick, what do you think?
1: Well, if they found for the patient, it was only because of extraordinary lawyering. there's no data that suggests, that, to my knowledge, that giving Tamiflu to any hospitalized patient in any way changes the outcome. None, zero.
0: By the way, we all know hospitals that believe in that and require you, when you admit a patient from the emergency department, it it was some sort of acute pulmonary process to start Tamiflu.
2: And we also know that outcomes in legal cases are not uh, necessarily data-driven, right? No, this is lawyering. This is oh not- yes, Ex- yeah, but yes, excellent loring. Okay, here it is. Here
0: it is. Jury returned a 10-2 defense verdict. So again, the people of Montana come through for us. They, they understood sensitivity, specificity, number needed to treat, and the fact that Tamiflu has never been shown to save anybody from anything.
1: Well, you know, uh, Jennifer, I was not aware of the uh, case that you're talking about. Is it is it pretty recent?
2: It is pretty recent, yes. In fact, I, I, I would ha- I'll have to go back and get the name of it for you, but um, it was absolutely shocking to all of us, particularly in flu season, and particularly when so many of us are not fans of Tamiflu ever we don't you know i don't think that that's a, a a great great medicine
1: you know the ramifications of that are just absolutely frightening terrible i think and um I, i'm sure this is going to be appealed this this cannot stand uh, yeah the outcomes were bad had nothing to do with the treatment
0: exactly right, well, well anyway we have uh, we have a couple of thumbs up for you guys in Montana who did it right. Okay, next case. And you can, you can call the case right off the top. A retired MD goes to the emergency department of the hospital where he'd worked. At 78 years of age. I went to the ER. And after his, he says his esophagus was plugged by food. He told him that. That's what he said when he walked in. Uh, somebody not a board-certified emergency department uh, physician uh, took a uh, took a chest X-ray and said it didn't reveal anything, and there was no ev- uh, evidence of perforation of the esophagus.
1: What a wacko!
0: The doctor <laughs> I mean, or personal, the patient? Nothing. You know,
1: good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the anyway. The emergency, the person staffing the emergency department, I hate to refer to him as an emergency patient.
1: No, no, you mean the physician. I I, I would, I don't think you had to go there. I think that there are physicians who are not board certified, who work in rural areas where there will never be a board certified emergency physicians who try hard or doing their community this best service that they can. Yes. You know, what are you going to do?
0: No, you're not going to do anything. So what they did was they, because he was an old staff man, they put him, uh, they made a little differential diagnosis, said that this is okay. They put him up on the floor at night under the care of a um, uh, an internal medicine resident and a nurse. They continued to watch him go to downhill and his PO2s sink throughout the night. Uh, boys and girls, what disease does this old doctor have? What do you think? Rick?
1: Well, you're telling me that he said he had a bolus or something in his, in his esophagus.
0: Right. He came in and said that. And, and, How, and how does Jennifer, that screw up your you th- th- O2? Yeah. Well, yeah, we will find out in a second. Jennifer, what do you think he guy had? He's asked.
2: Wow, with uh, with with those few facts, that's great, Greg. Thanks for putting me yeah, on the spot exactly like that. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you he could, he could have, <laughs> okay. he could have ACS. He could, uh, he was he could have a PE. He, he, he could have um um a tear in, in from you know in the esophagus.
0: They got to him in the morning, and somebody did the right study. They they did a CT, uh, not a plain X ray. And of course, they found that he had ruptured his esophagus, as he'd told them, and uh, they went in and did an emergency surgery on him at that time. But for those of you who remember Borhov syndrome, Doctor Borhov watched the Dutch admiral die, having having ruptured himself on uh, what I think he had chicken for dinner or whatever it was. In any event, this older doctor died in two days. And the report talking about the children of this doctor, they all said, he told you what they had. Why didn't you get a different test? And uh, indeed, he died. And uh, this was a substantial Massachusetts medical medical decision. It didn't go well for them in that case. Do you think doctors get different care than other people, Rick?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. I think in a lot of cases, you know there's this belief oh you know you get worse care, they go but they 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 go around corners and they don't do it. I think that a lot of that is just crap. I think that doctors get can get and often do get superb care better than the average bear, absolutely yeah the, occasionally are there mistakes? Yes, there are occasional, yes, there are mistakes um, I
2: think the biggest danger with treating physicians is that they'll often self diagnose. And, and then you're biased when you're working that patient up, but, but that's the only danger I see.
0: I actually have a, I have a wonderful doctor for my uh, diabetes, and he slaps you around day one, said, listen, I take care of a lot of f- famous people. Shut up. I'm running your case. You got a problem? Give me a call. Do this or that. But do not do your own experimenting. He said, I expect the same out of you as I would from anybody else. And if you look at this guy's list of patients, he has a lot of people who you would know. And um, I like his attitude. He, he said, I'm going to treat you well, but I'm running the show.
1: Sounds like a big believer in shared decision making.
0: <laughs> well, actually, he is, Rick. But, but, you know, he has to put up with so many, so many physicians. Okay, next case. I'm going to uh, I'll give you only three facts, and we'll see how you do. 14-year-old boy with pain in his testicle.
1: We got it. We got it. Move on.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, unfortunately, again, he came in. Mother says he's crying at home in pain. He gets there, and he stops having pain. Somebody sees a few white cells in the urine and says he oh, has God. what? Epididymitis. <laughs> and <laughs> so they take him home. And and he's crying again. And the dad said, well, he's just a wimp and all that kind of stuff. The next morning, of course, they removed the testicle. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, it. I don't know how often we're going to have to see testicular cases. If you're a male, if you have pain below the umbilicus, I have another case here where the child came in with a right lower quadrant pain. But there's no evidence, and one of the, one of the uh, charges was that they did not properly examine the patient. And sure enough, if you look at the physical exam, nobody checked in a lower abdominal pain in a boy, whether he, uh, uh, penis and testicles. Why wouldn't you, since it cost you no money to just reach down there and feel? I have no idea.
2: It's because um, because people aren't thinking about it, Greg. It's not even on their differential. They see right lower quadrant pain, they think appendicitis, and they stop. And um, and I, I don't know how else you could explain it.
1: Well, you know, I wasn't going to get into it. Let me just briefly, briefly, briefly. There's not a lot of time left. but I, And I wasn't going to do it, but it's kind of a... We have a paper that we've not done before. It's called Inadequacy of Physical Exam as a Cause of Medical Errors and Adverse Events a collection of vignettes, and we can go into this paper in more detail on another recording because uh, I don't want to give it too short a shrift, but at the top of the list, in terms of errors that doctors made, and these are errors that were self-reported, was failure to do a decent abdominal exam, which resulted in delay of making a diagnosis. And this is a paper which has some good information, but that was it's, it's kind of in keeping what we just talked about. You got to basically do a decent exam and the uh, lower part of the abdomen ca- counts kind of thing.
0: Again, we started we started a, um, a little project a few months ago talking about all the dumb excuses we've heard why I'm late. To the emergency department, I've had people stop me, call me, grab me and say they love that. And, uh, and they said, uh, yeah, here's some others for you, and you ought you to deal with it. And, uh, and uh, so, why well, don't listen, we- before you get
1: into that, the reason that this matters is because being chronically late is a, a canary in the coal mine of a doctor who's got some issues. Whether he is, doesn't like his job is probably close to the top of the list. And it's got some this may be a tip off to a doctor who is being challenged and you want to try to identify these people early, try to save their careers because this may be a suggestion of a doctor who's burned out.
0: Yeah, this this could be an early sign of depression. There's there's no question about it. I mean, hopefully most of you didn't come from a family like mine where my father basically said if you're early you're on time. If you're on time you're late, and uh, I mean, those, those old World War II guys were just hard asses. You got to try to avoid them. But I, I, I liked uh, some of these, such as uh, he said, this gentleman dropped these off, said, the meeting ran late. Of course, the comeback to that is, why did you plan a meeting that you knew could run over when you're, you're scheduled for a shift? Number two, I had a dental appointment. Number three, I had a doctor's appointment. Finally, am I late Am I actually late? And uh, if there's anything that got me insane as a director, it was people who wandered in the door late. And Rick, you're right. As the director, you pulled them aside. And what you found out was there were other problems going on in those people. Emergency medicine is one of those businesses that does, there's nothing as I don't think you can do anything as good for the, your fellow doctors as to show up 15 minutes early and start seeing patients.
1: That's that's a wonderful thing to see. That guy walking through the department, heading to the uh, the doctor room where you get your 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 jacket on. It's yep. like thank God, you know.
0: Yeah, I in all my years when I used to say. Would anyone object if I started work early? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I never saw that in all those hey, years. Take your hands
1: off my patience, damn it. Yeah,
0: right. Exactly. <laughs> never saw it. Okay, Rick, what else is up?
1: Uh, Jennifer, do you have any uh, closing words here, or words of wisdom uh, that you would like to impart to our 8,000 listeners? <laughs> <laughs> or is it, it It was one oh, of those.
2: No, I, you know, I. I really, um, I really value these risk management monthlies. I think that they're very beneficial, very thought provoking. From today's thoughts, I think really, if I had to summarize it, would be to to think about informed consent involving the patient, how you're going to document that in an efficient and reasonable way, because. That's important. My tip to people when I give talks on documentation is that if you have some shorthand, some shorthand way of of saying this is how I inform patients on, say, going home after chest pain or Mm -hmm. abdominal pain, and I always do it the same way. If you say that you always do it the same way and you document in your shorthand and you actually do that, then I think that it can save you a lot of time and also – Decrease your risk a little bit.
0: Excellent I, advice. Excellent advice. What I always t- told them to teach them to do is to say, this is my usual and custom. I have no reason to think I did not do my usual and custom in this case. Why would I varied when, in this patient when I always do it this way? Because it really, that, that's the best we can do. Anyone who thinks they even remember the patients they saw last night is pretty much lying. And uh, when you try and write a history on a patient you saw two weeks ago, impossible. When those things appear in in your box, I have no idea what those things mean. Jennifer, is there any kind of
1: phraseology that you put into the chart regarding any kind of standard chest pain, belly pain, you know, those kinds of things that come up all the time?
2: You can use dot phrases now, and certainly I use that when I have a system where I can. I, I work in a couple of different places. When I'm on Epic, I use a particular dot phrase on um, strict return precautions. I have one for chest pain, one for abdominal pain, things that are more high risk or headache. And then... Um, and when I don't have that option, I just say strict return precautions are given, and and I have pretty much a similar spiel for the the high risk cases that I see and send home. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if if ever I were called. Um, to a deposition to talk about those, I could say this is my spiel, this is this is what I say for all of my patients. And agreed that you can't remember every patient, but if you do things the same way every time, then you can you can honestly say that and and I think it, it helps you a lot. The one other thing that I would say also that we talked about was um, talking about knowing the literature, knowing the numbers, being able to actually give good informed consent or have shared de- decision-making. I agree with you. If if you don't know the numbers on TPA or you don't know the numbers on treating an appendicitis with antibiotics, then you really can't give informed consent. And so yet another reason to continue with uh, your continuing medical education.
1: Yeah, I think the... Uh a subscription to emergency medical abstracts would go a long way in terms of helping you out here, you know, cutting through the uh, literature and the fog there and getting right to the heat of the matter. Hey, listen, Greg, let me tell you, I'm looking at my watch. We have uh, about 2.5 minutes for the wine of the month. Ah,
0: We can do it. All right. I understand that we started this program off with a little trashing of us for having wine of the month. But for those of you who are willing to keep listening for the next two minutes, I want to bring back two oldies from the past, which have had some, had some days when they were down a little bit, but they're back now. And uh, the best tasters around say so. I've been, uh, I've been tasting their, their, their wares for years. And one of those is Sebastiani. Uh, Sebastiani's, and if, if I had to pick one out and say, hey... What's great for the money? Sebastiani's two thirteen, yeah, twenty thirteen Cabernet Sauvignon, Sonoma County, nineteen bucks. This is a ninety two wine, nineteen bucks, nineteen bucks. Down the street they're selling wines for two hundred dollars, so I would go with that one, Sebastiani. They've been around forever; they're terrific. Lastly, I have been a fan of of Stags Leaps a stag's leap since i was a, a practically a medical student and um they had some some tougher years they're 100% back and if you have to get something and uh take a bottle the 214 uh chardonnay they actually do it in napa but they have some other counties just above there 30 bucks a bottle absolutely fantastic and they do a Merlot, and I like some of the heavier red wines. I know there, there are people who, eh, they don't want a Merlot. Their, their Merlot, 2012 Merlot Estate Block 20, is great. And this stuff, you can afford to buy it. You can take it to the party. You don't have to be ashamed. This is not Yellowtail from Australia. Here's a couple of good ones you can uh, share with your friends. So there you go. Rick, Jennifer, thanks a lot.
1: Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time uh, today to add your expertise and your experience. It uh, adds a substantial amount and, and keeps Greg honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you're going to do that, but yeah.
1: Okay, right, thanks, guys. Uh, we'll talk with you next month. Bye for now.
0: Bye. <laughs>